You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Kate Bailey Hutchinson, the U.S. Ambassador to NATO, joined the Washington Post to discuss the emerging challenges facing the alliance, President Trump's frequent criticisms, and the vital role it still plays in upholding democratic values. Let's listen. Good morning. I'm Karen Tumulty, and I'm a columnist here at the Washington Post. And we want to thank you for joining us here at Post Live this morning, where in partnership with the Texas Tribune Festival, we will be having a conversation with Ambassador Kay Bailey Hutchinson who is the permanent representative for the United States at the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. And I am going to apologize in advance if I slip up at some point and refer to her as Senator Hutchison, because of course she did represent the great state of Texas, my home state, in the U.S. Senate for 20 years. And she was there a member of the Republican leadership. So welcome, Ambassador Hutchison. Well, thank you, Karen. It is great to be with you and with the Tribune. And I know they are having a virtual festival for the first time and maybe ever. And so everyone is being more resilient and more creative. And I hope it's all working out. I know it is breaking my heart not to be there in person wandering up and down Congress Avenue. But I wanted to talk to you a little bit. So NATO, as as we mentioned, was formed 71 years ago, right after World War II, to combat what seemed to be the principal threat for the for Europe and the United States, which was the Soviet Union. But it's now been 30 years since the collapse of the Soviet Union. We are also coming up on another anniversary, which is the first and only time NATO has invoked Article 5, the mutual defense plan, which was right after 9-11. So could you talk a little bit about, given the shifting nature of the threats to the alliance, what exactly is NATO's role these days? And how has it evolved? How is it evolving? Well, of course, it is such an important military political alliance, the longest standing one in the history of the world, actually. And it is strong and it is unified. And that's saying a lot with an alliance that has grown from 12, which was at the end of World War II, when uh, both President Truman and the European leaders at the time decided, along with Uh, really General Eisenhower saying, we've got to avoid getting in late and having two world wars where we come in and we lose so many of our people, they have already lost so many of their people. And that was the formation of NATO so that we could deter conflict rather than having a war and it being so devastating. So with the first 12, uh, we have through the years, in the 70 years, expanded to 30. And it is a transatlantic alliance. So it's Canada and the United States on that side of the Atlantic, and then the European alliance, which has grown after, as you mentioned, the Cold War ended. Uh, we added the members that have come in, uh, many from the Eastern European countries. And I'll tell you what has been so impressive to me, because, of course, as a senator, I was very supportive of NATO. And 
it is a bipartisan support that we see in Congress and in the United States because it has worked for 70 years that we move by consensus and there are many disagreements in an alliance of 30, as you can imagine, but we're able to overcome those differences and act with firm resolve uh, to deter the adversaries that we are looking at now. And the adversaries of today are still the Soviet, well, Russia, and um, Russia is still, uh, as recently as two weeks ago, um, having an, uh, a poisoning of the major dissident in the Russian government, outside the Russian government, uh, to have been poisoned while he was in Russia uh, with a nerve agent that is made in Russia, um, shows that Russia is not yet ready to come into the community of nations. So we must deter uh, the kinds of acts that we see Russia doing, like running over Crimea uh, that was part of Ukraine and is still part of Ukraine, and we're standing up for Ukraine sovereignty in that conflict. Uh, the same in Georgia, where Russia has overcome uh, parts of so sovereign Georgia. And we are standing firm as an alliance against this kind of aggression, and it is for the security umbrella of all of our people. And before I finish, I want to say we are also now taking on terrorism. Uh, after 9-11, Article 5, which you mentioned, is our mutual pact that if one of us is attacked, we're all attacked. And the only time it has been invoked is for the United States after 9-11 when we had the terrorist attack. And that's why we're in Afghanistan today with our NATO allies still fighting so that terrorism will not be able to be exported to our country or any of our allies. Now, you come in, you came into this job um, in a sort of unusual situation in that you were appointed by a president who has been a very vocal critic of NATO, um, complaining, among other things, that the Allies don't spend as much as of their military budgets as they should on their on defense. How has that affected your ability to carry out your job, and how has it affected the role that the United States plays in NATO? Well, it's a really good question because what you said is true. The president uh, campaigned saying the Europeans aren't doing enough. But as you also earlier said, I was in the Senate for 20 years and every president with whom I served said the same thing, that Europe needs to step up. It needs to to do more for its own security so that the balance is there in the alliance for the spending, the capabilities, the contributions that are necessary to be a real deterrent to any kind of adversary. And the president has been very firm and our allies have stepped up to the plate. They are increasing their spending, uh, exponentially, and they're showing that they have gotten the message and that they believe they should do more. So we're seeing a real uptick in the spending 
at the request of our president and the presidents of the past. And I think it's making us a stronger alliance. There's no question that America is the leader. The Supreme Allied Commander is an American and has always been. We have the biggest capabilities, of course, in excuse me, in defense. And uh, we spend uh, up to almost 4% of our budgets on defense because Americans believe in a strong national defense. And now the European allies are coming up, they're doing more, and the alliance is very strong and united on this point. President Trump, I mean, we have learned many times and most recently in the last day or so with a book that has just come out by my colleague, Bob Woodward, that what the president says in public though is not always what he says in private. And he has on occasion actually threatened to have the United States withdraw from NATO. It, is that a true possibility if, if the allies don't step up and spend as much as, as he believes as, as they have agreed to? And what kind of NATO would there even be without the United States? You know, I, I will say that I think NATO must have the United States in this transatlantic bond. I don't think there's any question. And we bring more than just defense capabilities. We bring the will to deter against enemies. We are willing to call out enemies. We're willing to call out potential enemies or adversaries, and we're willing to take the steps necessary to arm against those. Just as an example, the United States Department of Defense came out with their regular um, assessment of what are the security risks to our country. And in it was two years ago, in 2018, uh, they said top line is, Russia and China. It's going to be a competition of superpowers. And U.S. is the one that steps up and we start pushing. We start pushing our allies. We start looking even more globally to assuring that we have the partnerships as well as the allies that will be able to stand up against a superpower competition. So we bring more to this alliance than just the money, just the capabilities. We bring the will. And I think that our allies see that. And I think they want that. I think they want to have our strength in our midst. And I hear this from our alliance ambassadors uh, regularly, that they know they need to step up. They want America to lead. And that's happening. And I, I want to say that, as I mentioned, we have 30 allies and we have 40 partners all around the world, from the Middle East to the Far East, uh, throughout the world, that also are partners with NATO. And this strengthens the alliance. For instance, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, uh, many are in our missions with us. Australia is one of the heavy partners. Georgia is a heavy partner in Afghanistan in our okay. mission so, there. So we are leading. People want us to lead and we are doing it. Ambassador, though, how is the president feeling about NATO these days? It's, again, the, the, 
is the, the possibility that the United States could withdraw from this alliance. Is that a, a real possibility or was that more just bluster? I think that he used some of that language early on when he was saying, you've got to do more. Um, and I think the allies have stepped up and he's recognizing that. I think he is talking about the alliance uh, stepping up at his at his uh, pushing. And I think that now he does see the value of NATO, the value of allies. So I think that he has turned a corner. I think he has great faith in our Secretary General, Jens Stoltenberg, uh, because they talk uh, on a fairly regular basis. Um, the Secretary General talks to Secretary Pompeo, to Se Secretary Esper, to uh, Robert O'Brien, the National Security Advisor, on a regular basis. So I think that we're in sync. I think we're in sync with the administration as well as our allies that um, are very much united on the threats that we're facing and building up to deter against them. You, you had also mentioned the recent poisoning of a le leading Russian dissident, uh, Alexei Navalny. Uh, Angela Merkel has called for collective action. I mean, this is not the first time that that we have seen Moscow do this, that we have not, that, you know, we have seen what appears to be Putin do this to voices of dissent. What do you think should be done collectively um, by the Western allies? You know, I think that is a really tough question that is being discussed right now. NATO came out right away with a denouncing of this happening in Russia, calling on Russia to fully investigate and transparently investigate. Uh, certainly Chancellor Merkel, I think, was quite bold in taking Mr. Navalny into Germany to treat him. Um, that was a bold move on her part. And thank goodness that she did that so that there would be an assurance that if he can be saved, and hopefully he will be, uh, that the German medical community will be able to do that. But also, uh, we trust that Germany is the one that named the poisoning. Uh, it is a Russian nerve agent that is manufactured in Russia. It is used uh, well, it's actually illegal because it is a uh, weapon that has been uh, accepted as uh, not at all um, a, 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 a weapon. It's a chemical weapon that is against all of our norms to be used against anyone. So Russia has even acknowledged that but it's only made in Russia. So uh, I think she called out, uh, she, Chancellor Merkel, called that out correctly. And now we're calling on Russia to investigate who could have done this and, um, and take the necessary actions if they are going to be taken seriously. And I, I think President Macron of France canceled his trip to Moscow to meet with President Putin. Angela Merkel has been very strong. Our G7, our, uh, we have also spoke, spoken strongly against this. 
And I think we've got to continue to press Russia to stop malign behavior. Uh, they used this agent against a former Soviet a spy that uh, was in the UK. NATO spoke out strongly at that time, and ambassadors were um, expelled from many of our NATO countries, most of our NATO countries, if not all. And that was a retaliation. Now we're talking about, will sanctions be right? Uh, will the Germans cancel Nord Stream 2? I hope they will, but they have to do that um, themselves. Uh, I think there are a number of opportunities for all of us to have a collective response, and I think we're talking about it now. We're, we're certainly looking to Russia to see if they will come forward and admit that this was done in Russia and that someone will be called to account for it, um, and then we will make the appropriate, um, hopefully, joint effort uh, against Russia doing something like this or being behind it. Well, and as we, as we look at tomorrow being the anniversary of 9-11, it's a reminder that of how long the, the war in Afghanistan has gone on. And we've seen, you know, constant efforts to, to bring the two sides, the, the Taliban and the Afghan government to the negotiating table. And it just seems to fall apart every time. How hopeful are you that this is something that could actually happen? And especially given that, you know, the President Trump's probably his central promise in foreign policy was to to end the endless wars. And at this one time point, this one has gone on longer than any in our history. You know, uh, we do we are going to have a, a ceremony here at NATO uh, in front of a piece of the World Trade Center that is at the entrance to NATO. Um, and I think that because of really strong pushes and strong efforts uh, by President, by Secretary Pompeo, who has appointed Ambassador Khalilzad to bring the Taliban together with the Afghan government. I am very hopeful that that will occur, that they, the two sides will get together, hopefully in the very near future, like in days, not months, and it would be in Doha as a beginning. It's not going to be easy, and no one should think that this is going to be a, uh, a quick um, uh, peace negotiation, but it is going to start, I think, in the very near future because of the efforts that have been made really by the United States with the Taliban to set the parameters by which all of the of the different uh, communities in Afghanistan will be represented. And there have been so many great strides in Afghanistan, educating girls and uh, having signs of peace. We've been training the Afghan soldiers so that they would be able to hold on to a peace uh, if we can get the agreement by the Taliban to stop the violence and sit down with the government of Afghanistan and the communities that are represented in the Loya Jirga and come to a, an agreement on what 
Afghan peace will be that is inclusive of all of the minority groups and the different community issues in Afghanistan. They have had international support in that country for 20 years now. NATO has been a force because of Article 5 on behalf of the United States. They've been at our side all of these 20 years. Now we are on the cusp of seeing the fruits of that and we're all very hopeful. And I think tomorrow in our, um, our celebration of the lives that had been given for this effort uh, after 9-11 um, that we will be able to start those peace talks and thank the people who have stood with Afghanistan and all come together uh, to say the lives that were lost will not be in vain, that we will go forward with a an Afghanistan and an Iraq, hopefully, that will not be able to foment terrorism that will be exported to the United States and our people or any of our allies ever again. Well, in the time we have left, I'd like to turn to domestic politics because um, if I remember this correctly, you actually made history as the first Republican woman ever elected statewide in the state of Texas. And we have seen, um, you know, we have seen, you look at Congress, there are so many more women in Congress than there used to be. But the Republican Party is still really struggling. Like in, after the 2018 election, there, there was a just influx of Democratic women to the House, but the number of Republican women in the House went down by 10. How well do you think the Republican Party is really doing in recruiting and promoting women candidates? And what would you like to see them do more of? Well, it is a tough a situation. And certainly I'm very proud that there are 25% of the United States Senate now women. And when I got there, I was the seventh woman uh, to be sitting in the United States Senate. And now there are 25. And I, I think that is a good step in the right direction. However, I think that Republicans need to do more. I don't think that we are nearly where we should be as a Republican Party in, uh, in electing women, getting them through the primaries. It's, it's very tough. I had a tough primary. I've had several tough primaries. Um, and I know how hard it is. But I think Republicans are reaching out. I think they're making the effort. And I think we've had great increases. I think we are now nine out of the 25. I think there's 17 or so Democrats and uh, the rest are Republicans, maybe eight. Um, and I think that we need to do more. I think we've recognized that we need to do more. And so I think that we're going in the right direction, but we need to equalize those numbers a, a whole lot more. You, you've sort of touched on a, a sort of paradox here, because if you look at the research that's been done by the Center for American Women in Politics at Rutgers, among others, it, it does seem that where Republican women candidates really struggle is in the primaries that, you know, if, if a woman, if a female Republican candidate gets to a general election, they they generally 
do quite well. Um, and the Democrats have a lot of infrastructure in place. They, they have organizations like Emily's List and others that go out and recruit women candidates, prepare them to run. The, the Republican Party doesn't seem to have any equivalent of that. No, I think the Republican Party does when a woman is nominated. But I think you've gone to the real heart of the problem, which is getting out of the primaries. And uh, I think that is what needs to be addressed. The, the party can't really recruit into primaries because they're supposed to be not favoring candidates. I think um, I, I have seen in the Senate where uh, the Republican senators, the campaign committee, is being more active in uh, recruiting women. I think they've been very uh, bold in recruiting women. I think they know that they need to do more of that. And I think that when they do, they are now, they didn't used to support in primaries, but once a woman won, she would be supported. I had no support in the primary from the party or from the senatorial campaign committee. But now uh, they've sort of changed direction and they will help a candidate that they recruit or an incumbent uh, that is in a primary. And I think that's healthy because uh, I think you need to give that backup and that support, which uh, has been later coming maybe by the Republicans, but which has, I think, turned the corner. So I think it's it's going in the right direction and we are just going to keep on trying to make sure that it does. I have tried to help women candidates. I, I can't now as an ambassador, but I've tried to help women candidates a lot along the way. I've campaigned for them. And I think Republicans are, are doing that more now as well in primaries. Uh, to make sure that good, credible candidates do have that backup and support. And how important do you think it is to the future of the Republican Party to uh, to become less of just a a white male party? And again, you you look down on the the floor of the House of Representatives these days in the chamber, and the the difference really is striking. Oh, really? I haven't I haven't seen that in. Uh, particularly, but but certainly I think our leaders do know that we have to be representative of the population. And we have we have had outreach, I think very much so in minority communities as well as women. And we need to do more. There's no question about it. And I think our party leaders are realizing that, um, just as I think the Democratic Party leaders are as well. And I think uh, especially noticing that the Democratic Party leaders went after women uh, candidates who had served in the military. And I think that's a, a great step in the right direction and one that uh, Republicans uh, can do as well. Uh, we, have, uh, we have Republicans who've now served in the military who are in the Senate, women who are in the Senate, uh, as well as those in the House. And I think military experience is really strong and it it increases the understanding of Congress about what the military needs for that strong national defense. I think it's one of the reasons that we have 
such a strong support for strong national defense, which is different from what I'm seeing in European elections, where um, the support for a strong national defense is not as out front in European countries as it is in the United States. And I'm really glad that we have that kind of background. I think we now have more uh, congressional members. I, I won't say more than ever, because it used to be that we routinely had uh, former people who had served in the military that went into Congress. That dissipated uh, in, the, in the waning years, but it's coming back. And I think it's a good thing. Well, thank you very much. I'm afraid that's all the time we have today, but Ambassador Hutchison, it has been so great to talk right. to you. And I hope I have next something time- I need to say. Oh, I want to say one more thing, and that oh, is you. I am so proud of you being a graduate of the University of Texas and in journalism. You're an award-winning journalist, and I am so proud of you. You follow in Walter Cronkite, Arthel yeah. Neville, uh, and um, you're doing a great job too. So I'm wanting to well, point that out. Kay Bailey Hutchison I, also I came. I am an orange and white leader, as you, if you didn't know. <laughs> but again, thank you for, and hopefully next time we can uh, go to the Texas Tribune Festival in Austin again. But it has been be great. great for both of us. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.